0: You're listening to the best possible taste with Sharon Noonan, sponsored by the Taste.ie, voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine.
1: Good evening and thanks for joining me here on this week's Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and on tonight's show, in light of the fantastic weather we've enjoyed recently, well the one or two days, but sure look, what more can we ask for? Rosemary Bennis from Sona's Health Food Store has details about what we can do to help protect our skin from a diet perspective. Robin Gill has his first book out, it's called Larder, and he'll be appearing at this year's Taste of Dublin. So I have a reminder of when I met him last year. And finally, Bloom starts this weekend and we'll go back to last year when I met Deirdre O'Shea on the award-winning AgriAware Garden and Maeve O'Neill, who designed the Strawberry Beds Garden. If at any point you'd like to get in touch with the show, you can drop me an email to s.noonan at live.ie or tweet me at queenoforg of Org, as in Queen of Organisation. So to start the show off tonight, we are looking at how to protect our skin from the sun, not from a lotion perspective, and what we can do to nourish it from the inside. Last year, I visited Rosemary, Bennis and Saunas in the heart of my hometown to get some advice. Let's have a listen.
0: Bon appétit. Yummy. Grubs up.
1: Delicious. Mmm. We're going to talk today, Rosemary, about summertime in Ireland and abroad and how we can protect our skin through different
2: supplements and foods. Okay, yes. So um, we'll cover the more classic Irish summer, which can be lovely, like the last few weeks, or it can be a bit more disappointing, <laughs> like usual. Or maybe heavier weather, damper weather, especially where you in certain parts of the country, a lot of midges and uh, insects in the evening when you want to get out and about, or if you're out in the bog, or if you're. Out in the garden and you find that stopping you enjoying it there's a couple of things you can do
1: and of course on a an overcast day in somewhere like bally Bunyan, we do still need to be very careful because the sun there's certain rays can be getting through the clouds there and you
2: still need to have a bit of sun protection yeah absolutely and i think we're you know a little bit risque about that we think oh it's fine we'd only put on the factor when there's clear sun but it's true you do need to just a point about that is that when you the action of the sun and the skin converts into vitamin d where people are much more aware now of the importance of vitamin D, it's had a huge effect on our immune system, our mood, our bone density, um, really strongly antiviral, and very often people are very low in vitamin D, like you know way below the levels, um, and therefore are much more susceptible to flus and colds and structural deficiencies as well. So it's important to have sun exposure because it is the best form of vitamin D. We do get some in foods as well, but that. that pure sun exposure is great but really about 20 minutes a day on maybe arms, face, legs if you're wearing shorts or a shorter skirt and that's fine and then put on your factor. So I'm not saying go out and burn but if it's you know before 12 o'clock um, or maybe around 3 or 4 get some sun but do put on your sun factor then because after 20 minutes we've made what the sun is going to do for us.
1: And what sort of foods and supplements can we be taking to get more vitamin D into our
2: diet? Yeah good question um, cod liver oil Natural source of vitamin D. It's in the cod liver, Um, liver, as in offal, offal, Um, and um, good, good eggs will have some vitamin D as well. Um, So
1: you're talking organic eggs from free range. Yeah,
2: from really, yeah, really preferably eggs that are around the backyard, you know, or or your neighbours or whatever. Um, But liver and cod liver oil. So it's limited enough. Now, a cod liver oil supplement is a great idea. You're getting your natural vitamin E, naturally occurring vitamin... Sorry, excuse me, D. You're also getting naturally occurring vitamin A, which is a really helpful antioxidant, very good for eye health, skin health. And then, obviously, you're getting the omega-3s. And then liver, yeah, it can be tricky. I think it's a habit if you mightn't be into liver is not something
1: that sits I know right now I love chicken liver patty yeah, but yeah. fried liver just a very bad childhood memories of yeah. it like I'm sure many of my like beers like many
2: yeah exactly sometimes a little bit can be like cooked into a bolognese or, a, or, a, or, a, or a, like a meat dish without really being tasted Sharon's not buying it so <laughs> anyway we leave it at that but otherwise um, and then otherwise if you find you just not get it and it's just not reliable um, the consistency is really important, apart from even the good dose. So then, really, supplementation is the best way to go. And you can either, um, apart, say, if you're not taking your cod liver oil, take a vitamin D in a spray form, which is very really accessible and available um, to the body, a capsule form, or there's even liquid forms as well. So that
1: is about getting the sun. So if you're out in the sun, what do we need to be doing then to protect it? What sort of things should we be using um, in terms of natural products?
2: Yeah. So from the inside out, in terms of protecting, because the sun is fantastic, gives us energy, gives us, it makes us feel good, you know, like produces vitamin D, does so much for us emotionally and mentally as well. Um, But it can burn and it can, and it causes massive oxidation of the skin, which equals ageing. That's all you need to know. Rusting, basically. Oxidation. That's what that is. So we do need to protect. So obviously use a sun factor. Um, I would say in this country, minimum factor 15 and upwards. And children definitely be 30 or even on your face, factor 30. We would do hypoallergenic, non-irritating, non-scented, suitable for sensitive skin, pure um, sun creams and they're great. They're made with natural, like zinc oxide, is a natural sun protectant, um, like filter. So they're really good if you're sensitive, especially if you get um, break out some white spots and reactions to a conventional sun cream. So they're really good. And also, then you can take what's called beta carotene, which is the orangey substance in yellow and orange plants, like carrots, peppers, all that. And if you take that orally as a supplement, it nourishes the skin from within and it helps to decrease your sensitivity to the sk- to the sun so it still isn't doesn't mean that you don't you go out without sun protection but it does really help and it's actually a very good skin nutrient and a lot of women especially now are really tuned into vitamin a and retinol and this is basically the plant cousin of it so very very good for skin protection in general so if you were
1: planning a sun holiday Mm -hmm. where you were going to be exposed to the sun quite a lot should you start taking that a week
2: or two in advance or a month in advance a month in advance yeah it's a fat soluble nutrient it takes a bit of time to build up i would say at least a month in advance Advanced. a lot of people take it actually start at the say springtime because um, they know they want to it's it's just it helps the skin tone and and color um, and then obviously using correct some protection but it is a really good and it's just a very good antioxidant which protects your cells sometimes we don't see that you know in the short term but long term anything that's antioxidant is good
1: And I think I've heard that
2: that can also ward
1: off against prickly heat if your if your skin is particularly sensitive to the sun, and if you if you do get too much exposure that you get all itchy from it. That's
2: right, yeah, it can be helpful. That's no, you'd want to have it built up for a couple of months maybe, but yeah, because you're decreasing your sensitivity. Another one that's a really, that's an old favourite that we talk a lot, a lot about in this show, Sharon, is nettle. Nettle's really helpful because it's a natural antihistamine. So there's a few natural antihistamines. vitamin C as well, actually. That's one we often forget. So, um, But nettle is great. And or, heat rash, or net, um, Orticaria is, or like nettle sting rash. Ortica is the Latin for nettle. And when you have those kind of little nettle like bumps on the skin, you're diagnosed with orticaria. The classic remedy for that is ortica or nettle. And uh, really helpful. It helps build the blood, it helps to increase your natural level of histamine so it counteracts the irritation and um, it's actually just genuinely good blood tonic we spoke about it last month as a kind of a skin as, as a body tonic um, so there's no nettles great either in drops or tablet, or tea
1: and you mentioned there at the start about midges and different bites yep. that you can end up getting whether you're at home or abroad is that something that can help with those as well
2: yeah could it would it would actually yes it would kind of ind- indirectly almost but it would because the reaction to the bites is um, a histamine response so we get bitten basically and our body goes bingo and releases floods of histamine which is caught which is what causes the redness rash irritation bumps swelling and so when you reduce that, it does reduce the reaction to a bite, for example. So yes, it would. There's also very good natural insect repellents, and based on neem. Neem is an Indian plant. It's a little bit like tea tree, but not as not as strongly antibacterial. But neem is great to repel um, midges, mosquitoes. Horseflies, all those buggers that love to bite sensitive Irish skin. Because prevention is better
1: than cure, and if you're sitting outside in the garden, there's a couple of things you can do to kind of keep them at bay. Yeah,
2: exactly. I would say, like, a sp- spray on the the neem repellent. That's really good. It's very sense- suitable for sensitive skin. There's no, it's not like DEET, and um, you can actually put that directly in the skin or around you or on a scarf or something. Um, then you can use citronella, which is an essential oil. It's a really lovely fragrance, um, and a does lot of that come from the lemon? Or? Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's an extraction okay. from. The, it's it's I, I forget which part exactly, but it's from the citrus family. Yeah, okay. and it's a really lovely fresh oil. You can people love it like for household cleaning, just a couple of drops in the kitchen sink, and it's really refreshing. But um, it's a great repellent as well. So you can burn that, or you can. We actually do incense sticks that you can light outside, or you get sometimes candles infused with it, and you can burn them outside of an evening. And they really do help, actually. Mm -hmm. I find you need a good lot of it, but they're great. And you can make your own little body spray with that. Just mix it in with water, maybe a bit of lavender, um, and and spritz it around like a really, really nice spritz. And actually, just speaking about lavender and tea tree, I think those trio, lavender tea tree and citronella, are great. They're a great summertime kit, because lavender is fantastic for helping to relieve burns, all sorts of burns, like a burn if you burned your hand off the grill or barbecue, for example really good you can apply it neat if you do a dilution of it it's fantastic on sunburned skin like say a little dilution and put on a face cloth like a compress soak in, in, in a basin in water and pop it on it's really cooling and very good for burn and then um, tea tree is a natural antiseptic natural death oil, basically so it's it's a fantastic put a little dab onto any bite that's looking a bit irritated um, and again actually put it in that little spritz mix as a, as a repellent um, it's just if you were traveling anywhere, have those two in your bag. They're okay. great. Yeah, and of course the other
1: <coughs> couple of items that are very good for bites and irritations would be aloe vera
2: and apple uh, <coughs> cider vinegar. That's right. Aloe vera is fantastic. This is a great all-round product, and some people, a lot of people, will have the plant of this. So you can just literally break off a leaf, squeeze out the inner gel, and apply it directly, or even keep the leaf in um, in the fridge and use it over the course of a week or two. Um, alternatively, get a Uh, tube of the gel, get a really high concentration, the one we have here is like practically 100%, um, so you do want a high concentration, but it's fantastic to cool burn, it is just, if you lash this on, if you went to Ballybonion got too much wind, didn't have your sun cream with you, and lo and behold you come home and you're like a tomato, lash on the aloe vera, like every 10 minutes just layer it on, Um, it'll be a little sticky, but you just it really, really, really helps. And maybe put like a cool compress of lavender soaked face cloth over it. It really, really helps. And then the next day, do not forget your sun cream. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And just says, well, to sp- never to happen again. Yes, exactly. Um, that's a great one in the kitchen. Aloe vera gel to have a tube of in the kitchen for just kind of okay. domestic household burns you can get really, really helpful. Okay. Yeah. And the cider vinegar briefly again an old stalwart and just just so many things but a little dilution of that fantastic for bites as well not really i wouldn't put it on burn now as well but but for bites absolutely yeah so i uh, like a little teaspoon in a 100 ml empty spritz bottle have that with you it's great especially if you were kind of camping or you know back like if you would a caravan or if you were just out and about in the summer a lot just have it around it's great well, when you're
1: talking about camping there, there is a lot of talk at the moment about Lyme disease. Yes.
2: Which, it, it comes from getting bitten by a tick. Yes, exactly. There's particular bacteria that's in the tick that they lodge into us, so it's awful and it's a really, really serious consequence Lyme disease. In terms of direct prevention, it's a bit like, um, it's more the physical preventions, like um, put you know when you're walking through long grass, when you're cy- out cycling and you're in meadows or whatever, um just be vigilant. Like It's lovely to have bare feet, but you are advised um, to put on socks or tuck your trousers into your socks, something like that. But at le- the very, very least, when you come home, check, especially with children, check, literally check their bodies. And if there's any little bites, um, there is a, people should look this up really. There is a kind of particular technique for dislodging a tick. Many people will have done it from dogs. I know I have at home, you'll see them and you just take them out, but there's a particular way to do it that's most effective. But it's worth being vigilant because it, Lyme disease is really really sinister it has very far reaching impl- implications and it's very hard to detect so it's worth being vigilant it's more the physical preparations rather than taking something as far as I know yeah and um, you shouldn't squeeze them out that's right because
1: that's when they release their poison or that's the, right the bacteria yeah into your system that's then. right so
2: it's worth having a look and see what Captain Google says bec- rather than being in the situation and not knowing what to do yeah okay, okay. um so yeah, I think yeah, th- it's funny about the nettle inside of vinegar because they do d- they do t- keep coming up in our in yeah, our slots. Do, but they? they have multiple uses. Yeah, mm-hmm. okay. If sun care and creams really bother people, um, especially if somebody was after maybe chemotherapy or had particularly, say for example, was on medication that was really increasing your resistance to the sun, which is one side effect, is very important to get the right sun care and do call in and have a look at, at see what the natural ranges are there because they're very effective. They're not they don't leave you off. Chalky and white, um, but they do really suit, and um, prevention is, is, is really important on a daily basis from the month of May, really. And you're always here to give advice, absolutely. That's our that's our,
1: what we aim to do. Fantastic! Yeah. Thanks for talking to me. My I pleasure, always. Oh, yeah. thanks, Rosemary.
0: You're listening to the best possible taste with Sharon Noonan, sponsored by the taste.ie, voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine.
1: Welcome back to the Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break I was talking to Rosemary Bennis about how to nourish our skin from within to protect it from the sun. And if you're just tuning in and you missed that interview, you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 102 FM when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app and it's also on the taste.ie website Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine Still to come tonight we are going back to 2017 to visit some of the award-winning gardens at Bloom Next so we're going to hear an interview I did last year with Robin Gill. Robin has just published his first book, called Larder and he'll be appearing at this year's Taste of Dublin which takes place in Ivy Gardens from the 14th to the 17th of June. Just by the way Lizzie Lyons from Lizzie's Little Kitchen in Listowel and Ballybunion makes her Taste of Dublin debut this year and will be doing her demo on Sunday the 17th of June at 12.30 just before Robin Gill. So we must get a chat with her in the next couple of weeks to talk to her about it. In the meantime here's a flashback to last minute when I met Robin at Ballymaloe Lit Fest. Bon appétit. Yummy.
0: Grubs up.
3: Delicious. Mmm.
1: Robin, it's great to meet you here in Cork, where I believe you spent a lot of your childhood during the summers on a dairy farm.
4: Yeah, that's right, actually. Kilbrack, uh, which is a farm um, in, in Mallow, actually, just around right the corner. Um, I used to come down a lot. lot. My brother was working on the farm at the time as well, and he used to make his own charcuterie, and he used to bake bread down there, but they had everything, there pigs, cattle, horses. And Patrick, who's one of the speakers here, um, over the next couple of days, um, he's he's set it up now as a completely organic farm. And I actually noticed, you know, obviously, uh, Ballymalloo has an incredible source, a great farm, but they can't come. You know, they have to buy ingredients in, especially for big festivals like this. And what did I see? about Kilbrack on so- on 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 some of the produce they were getting in as well. So it was really nice to see. But at that time, now, food
1: wasn't. You weren't really that big into food. Your your mother was a dancer and your father a musician. So yeah. was it quite a bohemian type life that you led in in Dublin?
4: Yeah, probably. I mean, they were working incredible you know a lot you know and she was she she was actually touring with Riverdance the whole time she was a choreographer and she was the one like she was she's from the UK but she she was brought in to kind of almost make it um a little bit different and she was the one that created the line it was her idea for the whole line on the Riverdance um so then she ended up travelling with three shows at any one time she'd be in Australia Canada one week and then in the UK or whatever you know and then my dad was always gigging so yeah they were working an awful lot um so, but it was always like, I used to go traveling a lot with them as well. And we'd always go to restaurants. So we were interested in food and I was always cooking at home because uh, I enjoyed it. I was cooking for the girlfriend and stuff, but it wasn't until I didn't know what I wanted to do that they suggested I become a cook. Cause I, I was going to go into university, but f- to do what, I didn't know.
1: But did you start to do an arts degree and did you go and do something? I was something trying, to, I was repeating my
4: leaving okay. in the Institute. Made my parents pay out this money to repeat my leaving. Halfway through I had done nothing. And I was like, I'm going to even get worse marks than I did in my first leaving at this rate. So I panicked and I just said I was going to become an electrician. I got an apprenticeship and went home and told the parents and they were like, why would you do that? You haven't even changed a light bulb. So I went and they, they told me to go, maybe I'd be a cook. My dad had a lot of friends that were chefs. He met a lot of chefs in the business. He used to work in. he was like a resident band dealer in Shelburne in the 60s and he would, he knew all, he used to go play golf with the chefs and stuff like that, you know. so. He was interested in food and he knew that they had a good life and he knew I was interested in travel. So that's one thing that's really great if you're a cook is, is to travel.
1: It sounds like they really encouraged you to do something that you would enjoy as opposed to like being an electrician. It's a good job, it's a steady job, but they could see maybe that that wasn't going to be what you would do for the rest of your life.
4: Well, yeah, I guess, I guess, you know, they did careers that they enjoyed, you know, and they worked very hard, but they enjoyed it. And I think for them it, it didn't make sense to do a career just for the sake of money you know you'd have to you have to enjoy it so you know I thank them for that you know and that's I did enjoy it and as soon as I stepped into the kitchen had some hard times but I knew this is what I wanted to do and um, yeah it's been very rewarding
1: you mentioned the hard times there and Mm. it hasn't it wasn't always an enjoyable experience for you and you've written about that yeah yeah and you you experienced bullying in the kitchen. The
4: very first restaurant I worked in was, was the worst. And I experienced this incredible, horrible environment where there was literally from the chef down, about four or five guys were just a group of absolute bullies, Horrible, horrible people. And I didn't, I don't know, it's only, it's only recently that I started to be a little bit upset about it. At the time, I just got on with it and I was angry. I was quite a sort of feisty little fella, you know what I mean? I would kind of take the shit and then... Like, i get angry to myself. And then when I, was, when I went home to tell my mates, that were also cooks, i turned into a joke. So it wasn't like I was going home crying or whatever. I did cry when eventually I left. You know what I mean? It was like an overwhelming thing where I finally said, actually, I'm not taking this after six months or whatever. But it was only when I went back, we were, we were about to launch La- uh, MasterChef and announced that we were going to be doing the show. And Daniel and I were super early and they weren't ready. And we went for a pint on Eastern Street. And I was telling him, it just reminded me because when I was in the Institute and I went straight to this restaurant and I was telling him about all the horrible stories and all of a sudden I was getting kind of emotional about it. And then when I was asked to write in the Irish Times, whatever I wanted to write, it could have been about carrots, you know, but they just said write about something. And I just instantly thought, I'm going to write about this, I'm going to write about my time. And it took a hell of a lot out of me. I was like literally on the verge of tears all day. And I was my wife saying, I don't know what's wrong with me, like, I'm, I'm really, really, all of a sudden upset about this. And as soon as I wrote it, I couldn't read it again, do you know what I mean? I wrote it, sent it in, and I couldn't read it. Like, even when it was published, I didn't want to read it. I was really upset about it. Um, now... Actually, ironically enough, I have to talk about it tomorrow <laughs> in front of a whole lot of people.
1: Do you think it's, it's maybe part of a healing process? Yeah, it must
4: be, but it's weird. Like, I don't know. I, I never thought about it. You, you do these things, you work, and you move on to something else, you forget about it. You know, I never consider myself to be sort of a little bit precious or a bit emotional. But I, I have been about this for some reason, but only now. I don't know.
1: For a lot of people, that would be the end of it. Like, I'm not staying in this career, but you said you're a very determined person, but also a very competitive person or very, have very high standards because it was Michelin star restaurants that you seemed to go after, that that's where you wanted to work and learn the, the French classical cuisine. Yeah,
4: I mean, it was only because I actually it, felt an overwhelming amount of guilt because I, I, I was really, I didn't put all any work into school. Everything, I was given so many opportunities. I um, My dad sent me into, got me into a great school for music and I was bunking off class and he was paying for it, you know. And then anything, rugby, whatever, football, everything I got, was in, I got into, I got into it for five minutes and gave it up. So I kind of suddenly turned around and I was like 17 years of age and about turned 18. And I was like, what am I gonna do? I've no skills, I've no, I've got a really bad score in my leaving and what am I gonna do? So i just was so happy just to finally say right this is me now i'm gonna be chef and that's it and there was no change in my mind on that so no even it was quite weird that it was the first experience i had was the worst and i, I wasn't going to let that stop me becoming a chef but funny enough i did i was overwhelmed with the, with the response i got from the article i got messages from people all over the world people who had who had accomplished great things as as cooks and went on down their own restaurants but then also people who had relatives that had issues where their their daughters or brothers or, or friends were going through that right at the time and were asking me for advice and then a lot of people who had, had went through it and decided they didn't weren't gonna cook. So it was all different people but yeah, it, it could put a lot of people off cooking.
1: And how does that make you feel when people get in touch with you and say, Yeah, we can relate to relate to this negative experience I was Is overwhelmed, that?
4: I was touched by it to be honest. Um, I was really pleased that the article went well, you know, and it was, I'd been contacted from as far as New York, people were messaging me, finding the restaurant and stuff, and, and, but the one, the one that really got me was a girl that contacted me through Facebook, and explained she was going through it right now, you know, and she was asking me for advice what to do, and was telling me some of the stories that were happening to her, and she was looking for advice, and I was like, oh my God, you know, i need to help her you know or, or at least give her some form, form of advice and that was that was the bit the, the biggest impact for me you know?
1: and what would you advise somebody or what did, what advice did you give to her and to anybody that maybe has experienced you no know, i just
4: said do the right thing don't walk out or whatever unless you really really have to hand in your notice be you know you know chin up and then i just said go and you know research into restaurants pick five restaurants that you think are the best and get some advice on it from other people in the business and literally go and spend a week in each kitchen and you must enjoy the culture you know whatever's on the plate is one thing you must ask them how often the menu changes but you have to see yourself fitting in there and you won't get that from just one day's working one day's trial you need to spend a whole week and pick at least five and even and if you're still not sure pick another five and really make sure
1: is that how you ended up then, and you worked with Marco Pierre White and Raymond Blanc and Noma? Did you say, right, okay, this is the way I want to do it, or did you kind of fall into those restaurants? I kind
4: of fell into it. I like two of my best pals were had both landed really good jobs over in London, and I didn't want to be left behind. They had a bit more experience than me. They were cooking a bit longer than me. One was going to the Gavroche. One was going to Chez Nico when it was still open with three stars, and. So I just wanted to, I want to be left behind. So I was only cooking about a year, a year and a half. When I left Dublin and I just went over for a couple of days with the Michelin Guide in one hand and a cover letter and went on literally every single door. And it was just by chance that, it was the last restaurant I went into actually. And it was just by chance that they gave me the opportunity to work in the Oak Room. So I ended up there, did a year and a half there. Then I went to, then I did actually didn't want to get into mission ever again. I went travelling for a little bit around Southeast Asia. I was just like got a bit hipped out when I was in Southeast Asia, and then with the same friend I followed over Paul McNerney, um, I followed over to Italy. He he was working in a one star on the coast of Naples near near Sorrento, the Amalfi Coast, and I followed him over there. And I wanted to work in like a trattoria, like I imagined sort of romantically being taught how to make pasta by some grandmother or something like that, and the thing is they are all family businesses so there's no work so the only place i could get into was like a two-star <laughs> the and then irony, all of a sudden the irony yeah, yeah i didn't want that job and then all of a sudden i become more seriously competitive and then it was like okay that's it it's only mission there from now on you know and then i ended up as somebody was doing a stage from Le Manoir a stage where you work for free just to kind of get experience from Le Manoir he was a senior sue in and he's working in don alphonse where i was working and then he invited, they invited me out to Le Mans because I looked after him. And then I did a week or two there and they offered me a job and I ended up staying there for four years.
1: And in 2013, you opened your, your own place. Yeah. Uh, the, the Dairy in Clapham in, in London. Yeah. And it's completely, it's not Michelin at all. It's very relaxed. It's, you know, tell us about the types of food. The, on the, the menu. food is,
4: is like, the ethos is, is, is trying to get as close as to what like is happening in the lives of malu here. You know, it's, it's all about produce, like we're looking, we've actually secured a, a, our own land in, in near Gatwick airports, where we're starting to grow all around vegetables. We had always grown around herbs on the rooftop. We had beehives and we make all around charcuterie, around bread. So it's it's basically like a, a step back to kind of traditional methods of cooking. So um, it's all about the ingredients and then almost like forgotten skills. So like, you know, fermenting, curing, uh, bread making. And just sourcing of the. It's, it's the closest to a farmhouse sort of restaurant that's in the city. That was my whole goal.
1: And then 18 months later, you opened the manor. So how does it compare to the dairy? Are They're they- actually quite
4: similar. There's just a different feel in the restaurant. Like the manor is a little bit more space. It looks a bit sort of scandy. It's got higher ceilings. It's quite airy. It's probably a little bit more comfortable in the evenings. There's more, more space between tables. Um, but there's still music playing there, it is still, I call it like a modern bistro and the food is I would say say it's like Dean's food, Dean is the head chef there so I don't claim to be this head chef that goes around writing all the menus and, and taking all the credit for it, like Dean is very much in charge and it's his menu we worked together for years and it's him and he's got his own style but it is along the same ethos as what we do. You know, everything's made from scratch. He does a lot of fermenting as well, and he's also involved in the farms. You know what I mean? So, it's 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 very similar. Same price point, to everything. So.
1: And Paradise Garage
4: similar, but it's it's more of an la alico- carte. Whereas we m- most people go for like tasting menus, and it's all sort of snacks and um, the menus are split up into snacks, garden, sea, and land, and it's more like small plates. Whereas Paradise Garage is a bit more of a traditional. Bistro, where it started our main course dessert, a little bit simpler cooking, and uh, it's, yes, East, East London, so it's pretty cool.
1: And that sounds a bit, now, like the, the format for the menu here today at Ballymaloo, the snacks to start off with, I just loved the anchovies, oh, yeah, they yeah, were yeah, fab, yeah. Now, yeah. I mean, such a diverse range of snacks there to start off with, and then the the eel, you don't have love made out on the menu for the eel,
4: <laughs> no, I should have put it down on the menu, yeah. Because
1: I asked one of the servers where oh, I was that from? someone came in Because in I'm it. from the north originally oh, and God, it I grew up about half an hour from, from Lochney and Lochney eel is hugely popular now in the in the
4: north, the promotion and everything. Yeah, well this so is huge in the UK. There's a lady from a company called the Dutch Eel Company. I don't know why well, she's Dutch, but that's where she buys her eels. Most of her eels come from Lochney. But she's a really good how she treats them is phenomenal, better than anyone else I know, or that I, anywhere else I've tried, both in the UK and Ireland. But I know she gets her from Loch Ness and she treats them, and she I think it's done in Lincolnshire. So she buys them um, and does all the production there.
1: And you incorporated a lot of the ingredients from the land here in Ballymaloe into the menu. Exactly,
4: like the smoke deal we brought over, we we brought over our own charcuterie, and we brought some like what I call like the secret our secret weapons, like our, a lot of stuff from our larder, so like the fermented fennel and sort of pickled garlic stems, and like the merguez sausage we smuggled over and stuff like that, but. But when we got here, then everything from the from the farm, from the dairy, all the vegetables and the radishes, then there was a little bit of foraging that took place as well. There was a little wild watercress that was picked, wild rocket, and uh, three-cornered garlic. All these sort of things. So it was phenomenal. We spent a lot of time on the Thursday, no cooking, just literally walking around. And the the everybody here has been really super helpful, just showing us around, showing us everything, and I'm quite proudly. And so they should be. You know, everything from the eggs to the dairy is just phenomenal.
1: And the team you work with is very important to you, be it here or doing a pop-up or yeah. over in London. And I hear you're very good to work with, that uh. you're very good to your staff and you pay them over, over the odds. And I certainly got an impression of you whenever you were judging on MasterChef Ireland that you are a very nice person. I felt on MasterChef Ireland that you know, you really wanted to hug them all the time and mind them and, and bring them on. Like you, you just didn't like being super critical
4: of them. Well, yeah, like we were, Daniel and I kind of even asked the producers, like, what do you want from us, you know? Because I didn't want to not, I didn't want to sort of act and pretend to be something else. So Daniel and I met up just before it started and said, Well, how we how are we gonna play this? And said, Well it's the first time there's been two chefs as judges. Usually it's someone who's like a food critic or something like that and a chef. So it's unique in the fact that it was two chefs. So we said, Well let's let's just like train them as much as possible. So the end goal is that when we get closer to the final that we've actually made the cooks that start at the beginning much better than what they were. And that's that was the goal. So yeah, you know that was that was it. So we wanted to encourage them. We we got more upset, which is exactly how I'd be in the kitchen. I'd be upset when people messed up, not not angry. You know what I mean? I'd be a bit like, ah, oh, that's a, you know, you let me down a little bit. You know, and they feel guilty mm-hmm. <laughs> as opposed to fear. You know?
1: Do you think the right person won it?
4: Yes, it all came down to it. Like you just and that, that's the thing. Every single episode, you really didn't know what way it was going to go. It was always down to the final dishes and she smashed it like Neve's dishes were faultless you know they might have seen to the viewers it to be a little bit simpler perhaps maybe than Simon's or whatever but when you when you when you put it all together you couldn't criticize anything that was on the plate it was really really good really very strong.
1: Well finally just to finish off the Bloodshot Supper Club. Oh yeah yeah. Is it open to the public or is it just for chefs? It is
4: no 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 it's it's aimed more for industry and not just chefs but front of house and back of house like it was it was made for like a platform for people to when they finish on a saturday night somewhere where they could go have a really good food interesting food quite shocking as well a lot of the food in a good way and it was a platform for young chefs it was aimed at a lot of the sort of the right-hand men of people who are really really successful like say Nuno Mendes always has a head chef or or club bossy's head chef and and those guys are cooking claude's food and nuna's food or or Marcus Waring's food, and they give them an opportunity to actually cook their own food. So they really, and those guys are so competitive. It's their opportunity to cook their own menu for the first time. So it's fantastic food. But then you had like as big communal tables, and you had I tried to restrict the tickets for only two people, like two per person. So you're not going to get like staff parties from restaurants, but you get. Different restaurants, front of house, back of house, all sitting together on the so table. Networking. And yeah, but now it's it was we did we were releasing only eight seats for the general public, but a little bit more now. We we don't sort of count and, and stuff. We just sort of who first come first served.
1: And this October you'll be back in Ireland for Food in the Age. Yes,
4: yeah, really looking forward. That was amazing last year. So so amazing. I mean, such a an incredible symposium. Very like the what ha, what's talked about the subjects the people but there's no barriers there i mean you're you're literally beside someone who's sort of a 17 year old young chef and then you've got pierre kaufman who's in his 70s and then you've got a three star from the states or a. Wang is cooking the most amazing Chinese food in London and then you've got Pugliese from Copenhagen, so all these different people, and that's just the chefs, you know, there's, there's journalists, there's food writers, there's everything, and then you're all in the pub afterwards and you're all mingling together, it's so much fun, brilliant. It's
1: very interactive, a bit like here at LitFest.
4: Yeah, I mean, and some of those kind of chefs, especially the chefy sort of symposiums of some of the months in Spain and stuff like that, everyone takes that's themselves it. so seriously and there might be big dinners where you're all sitting down and everyone's sort of like, business card here, business card there. It's not like that at all. There's no big sit down dinners. It's all like producers. So it's like a farmer's market and you're going around eating the most amazing oysters or salmon or beef or vegetables and you're you're chatting, you're just mingling the whole time. It's really good.
1: Well we look forward to seeing you then, if not yeah. before. And in the meantime, thanks so much for an absolutely wonderful lunch today you're and for talking to you, as welcome.
0: You're listening to the best possible taste with Sharon Noonan, sponsored by the taste.ie, voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine.
1: Welcome back to the Best Possible Taste. I'm Sharon Noonan and just before the break we heard me talking to Robin Gill who has just published his first book called Larder and he'll be appearing at this year's Taste of Dublin which takes place in Ivy Gardens from the 14th to the 17th of June. And earlier in the programme I was talking to Rosemary Bennis about how to nourish our skin from within to protect it from the sun. And if you're just tuning in and you missed that interview you can catch up on Best Possible Taste on West Limerick 1 FM, when it's repeated on Wednesday mornings at 8am. And the podcasts are available to listen to on SharonNoonan.com as well as iTunes and the podcast app. And it's also on the taste.ie website. Voted Ireland's best online digital food and drink magazine. So the June bank holiday weekend is almost upon us and Bloom is back. Last week, Board B as Denise Murphy gave us an insight into what we can expect this year. And earlier today, I delved into the best possible taste archives to find my report from last year. When I was there, I met Deirdre O'Shea at the Agri-Aware Garden. Which was called My Land, Your Land, Ireland, and Meve O'Neill, who designed the Strawberry Fields Garden. Let's have a listen.
0: Bon appetit. Yummy. Grubs up.
1: Delicious. Mmm. Deirdre, this year at Bloom, Agri-Aware has a garden. Would you just explain to us what AgriAware aware is, please?
5: Yep, so Agri-Aware is the independent educational body for the agri-food sector. So we're celebrating our 20th birthday this year. So um, our main objective is to raise the image and understanding of agriculture and the wider agri-food sector among members of the general public. So we do a lot of work through schools and we do, then we do general public awareness campaigns, uh, like what you can see here today in Bloom. So the whole
1: rationale for you being at
5: Bloom and having a garden is to raise awareness about what AgriAware
1: does. Just describe the garden to us here because obviously we can't all see it unfortunately.
5: Absolutely and yes that's exactly what why we're here today and I mean we're always looking for new ways, new innovative ways to engage the general consumer so I suppose agriculture impacts on all of us because we all need to eat and I mean it's only for the because of the farmers that we have this quality food available to us. So we're here today in Bloom with our uh, show garden which is titled my land your land ireland so it's a celebration bringing everybody together whether you're a doctor from dublin or a teacher from the west of ireland or a farmer down in cork it's bringing everybody together here today in this garden so our centerpiece here is a red uh, hay shed that you would see in a typical farm uh, when when you would be traveling the country so uh, within the within the hay shed we will have uh, various activities and workshops throughout the five days of bloom so we'll have chefs uh, we'll have um representatives from the agri-food industry doing workshops, we have school children coming in to visit our garden, and then uh, the four corners, if you can imagine a picture in your head, we have our grassland area representing our grass-fed dairy and beef systems, which is unique to Ireland Uh, and we also have a crop section, we have our woodland area representing our forestry industry, and we have our fruit and veg, Um, and then we have a paddock out the back and we have uh, some rainwater harvesting representing sustainability and we have it surrounded by a hedgerow for our biodiversity.
1: When it comes to designing a garden of this nature, what's involved? Do you put it out to tender to get different designers to pitch ideas to you or what, or
5: what way does it work? So the way it works is we have a brief, so we knew what we wanted to achieve from this. So we put that out and we met with three different designers and we ended up going with Tundi, uh, who's a Hungarian lady who, who designed the garden for us. So she's been excellent throughout. So we, we started construction here on the 9th of May and obviously planning happened well in advance of that. So it's, it's been going on for, for quite a while. I think it would surprise
1: a lot of people to come along and look at it and think it wasn't here three weeks ago and in another week it'll be gone again because it's moving on.
5: It's moving on, yes, yeah, I suppose, and that's the, the beauty from from our side in terms of doing the garden. We, we, we are always looking at ways that we can engage the general consumer. How do we tap into people that are not directly linked into core agriculture? And we felt a garden would be one of those ways that we could. Uh, so what's happening with the garden after Bloom, so Bloom will finish on the 5th, of June and then our garden will be uh, traveling down south, uh, down to County Cork, so uh, we are relocating our garden in Fota Wildlife Park. So the garden in Fota will be used as an outdoor classroom uh, so Sean McEown and Linda and the team down there will be using this garden to educate people about the agri-food sector uh, and it will link in with their, their education um, scheme that they have in place already
1: It's great to think that it has a life after Bloom, was that always part of the plan?
5: Absolutely, yeah absolutely. that that was part of the plan, I mean we we, we have to be looking longer term, you know, it's great to have it here for the five days and, and there'll be you know, over 100,000 visitors here uh, to Bloom over the five days but look, it's great to have that long longer term piece and uh, I suppose look, Photo Wildlife Park outside of Dublin it's it's the next biggest visitor attraction there's, there's almost half a million visitors pass through the gates every year so I mean for Agri-Aware we need to look at platforms that we can get our message out there effectively so that was one of the ways we felt and uh, look we've been working very closely with the guys in Fota and we have developed a really good relationship with them
1: Let's talk a bit about the different materials used in the garden because you mentioned there the, the hay shed is that reclaimed material that's used to build it um, I see there's a lot of wood Kind of um, logs around the place as well, and hay. There's a lot of natural materials here.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So our garden designer uh, would have worked with all the suppliers. So the the shed has come from um, O'Dowds in uh, County Cavan, and uh, she has worked with a nursery in Kildare uh, to source a lot of the other materials as well. So uh, it's been it's been all hands on deck for the last uh, number of weeks to, to get it all in shape. You
1: have some animal pens. Are the real animals going to be visiting them at any?
5: stage. Unfortunately, we, we won't have real animals in the, the garden over the, the number of days, but we do have a farm uh, down the other side of Bloom, down where the, the polytunnels and down near the food village. So we, we hope that people will, uh, will, will head down and have a look at our animals. So we have our beef cow, our dairy cow, uh, we have some sheep and we have some pigs. So we'll have live milking demos and we'll have some sheep shearing and other activities uh, over the five days as well. So obviously that's very important for us because that's the core of what we do is, is the animals.
1: Absolutely. And I think a lot of people that live in the country are comfortable from the country don't appreciate that a lot of city people have never had an opportunity to visit a real-life farm and see animals up close and personal
5: absolutely and look it's so important as I said I mean agriculture impacts on us all no matter where we're from what profession we're involved in we all need to eat food uh, and it's it's important that we appreciate the, the hard work farmers put in and, and the process, uh, it, it doesn't just arrive on the plate so it's great to, that people can come visit, see exactly how it happens I suppose that's the idea, going back to the garden that people can see the grass fed dairy and beef systems, they can see uh, the pigs, the chickens and then they can see the food produce on the table uh, from the likes of Lizzie Lyons and the other chefs that we'll have over the number of days
1: Well we'll have to mention Lizzie Lyons of course because she's she's a Kerry woman and she's come up today to cook for the press
5: Yeah and is fantastic, Lizzie has worked with us before uh, launching our our Incredible Edibles program back a number of months ago. So uh, we have Lizzie here for the day cooking up some lovely sausages and rashers and a pork dish for us today. So it's... um it's fantastic to have her here again.
1: Well, it's lovely to be here. If people want to find out more about AgriAware, where's the best place for them to go to?
5: Yeah, so they can visit our website, which is agriaware.ie, or uh, follow us on all the various social media channels. So, our Twitter handle um, and all our other social media is at AgriAware. Brilliant. Thanks so much for talking to me, and best of luck for the next few days. Thanks a million, Sharon.
1: May have tell us what the name of your garden is here at Bloom. Um, it's the Strawberry Beds Garden. And there's lots of strawberries in it, but there's also lots of other kind of connotations to strawberries and beds. Just
3: paint a picture, if you will, of it for us. Um, when I actually got the project, it was, um, was just kind of deciding how to um, do the most for strawberries, how I could um, sell them, and um, what I did was look at um, how strawberries were first commercially grown in Ireland back in the seventeen seventeen fifties. Um, there, there were grown down by the strawberry beds, a place called the Strawberry Beds in Chapel Lizard, Lucan, and um, there was the liffy running through it, steep embankments, and I decided to marry the idea of old and new um, in the garden here using large court and steel boxes that are, are very definitely shaped, and to give the idea of rills as well, how, how um, back in the olden days that um, strawberries would have been grown in fields, in rills. Um, What we have is now the commercial strawberries, huge big leaves, lovely luscious strawberry itself and I have those um, planted side by side with these lovely ligustrum lollipop shapes so to bring in the fun element for the kids and um, it just gives a lovely contrast to the flowing tiarella that I have here and heucheras, more woodland feel, so it's a real... It's a lovely flowing combination of, of plant materials. And you
1: have this beautiful water feature here in the middle, which obviously depicts the Liffey flowing through it. And then you have it, it's not a bed, but it looks like a bed. It's the top and the end of a bed.
3: Yeah, it's the bed end, yeah, the top and bottom of, of a, a bed. And I've just made them into benches, then using a very thick cushion to make it look like a mattress you know it's 150 depth in it as well Um, and they just rest over a rill uh, with soft flowing water running through it then as well.
1: When did you start to do the build for the garden? build
3: i don't i hardly remember i think it was about 10 days ago something like that and i would have got the project just at the end of march so it's been non-stop since, it's <laughs> since it sure the end has. of march <laughs> but it's fantastic to see it like my kids are here today seeing it from drawing in my in my studio to realising it now here it's really great like and it's only things only really come together and shape up and polished features are put in at the very last you know moment when everything else has been cleared away so it's really great to see it You're from Limerick originally are you living in Dublin now? Living in Dublin for a long time Um yeah so I'm um, from out the old Cretler Road, Redgate area and uh, yeah living in Dublin a good while I was in Art College in Limerick and taught as an art teacher for years and then went and studied again landscape architecture in UCD and um, find myself now in private I have set up a small private practice um, doing garden design and, and yeah.
1: a project of this nature now is it is it every garden designers dream to have a garden at bloom is this your first time here
3: oh it's my first time here um, yeah it's it's really great to get to get to bloom all right and it's um it's a slow journey, like I suppose, as well, because I would have put a project in for Bloom, Bloom last year, came up with an idea, but I couldn't get sponsorship for it. So it's very difficult to match your ideas and, and get a sponsor to match up with you. So, um, yeah, I'm delighted that this is a, a new project, new concept, as in strawberry beds, and the sponsor was great to work with as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's great.
1: Well, congratulations <laughs> on a beautiful garden, and best of luck
0: with the show. All right, thanks William. Bon appetit. Yummy. Grubs up.
1: Delicious. Mmm. That was to O'Shea on the Agri-Aware Garden which went on to win a silver gilt medal and Maeve O'Neill who designed the Strawberry Fields Garden who also won a silver. And Best of luck to everyone who has a garden in the running this year. Don't forget to visit bloominthepark.com for details about this year's bloom which starts this Thursday the 31st of May and runs until next Bank Holiday Monday. Before we finish up, a reminder about the old Butter Roads events taking place in woolen House in Mitchellstown, County Cork. Award-winning chef Brian McCarthy from Greens Restaurant and Cask is taking up residence in the woolen kitchen on Friday the 8th of June to host a Baobon supper after a wine tasting in the wine cellar. And then on Saturday the 9th of June, food writer Aoife McIlwain will host a workshop focusing on her book Slow at Work – to work less achieve more and regain your balance in an always-on world if will interview pat mulcahy owner of ballin house and farm which produces organic farmed venison and wild boar and goat also and there will be a long table supper that evening matching wines from Chateau Mulcahy in Hungary will be available with the meals. Visit the Ballinwillen House Farm Facebook page for all the details. And that now brings us to the end of tonight's programme. Thanks to my guests Rosemary Bennis, Robin Gill, Deirdre O'Shea and Maeve O'Neill. Thanks also to you for listening and don't forget to get in touch with your food and drink news, recipes and events. Email me on s.noonan at live.ie and until next time. Bon appétit.
0: Thanks for listening to the best possible taste with Sharon Noonan. Sponsored by the Taste.ie, voted Ireland's best online food and drink magazine. To get in touch with the best possible taste, email Sharon at sharonnoonan.com or tweet Sharon at QueenOfOrg, as in Queen of Organization. Bon appétit.